Okay, well, my name is Zachary Moore. Um, thanks for inviting me to speak at your philosopher's forum. Um, I am sort of out of my element here. I'm not a philosopher. I was trained as a molecular biologist, so you'll have to excuse me. This is kind of a new, uh, exciting subject for me to talk on. Um, I did try to take as many uh, philosophy classes in, in college when I was there. I, I am sort of excited to know that there's a, a new philosophy of science department in my alma mater, University of Cincinnati. Uh, there's some fellows there that are pretty active these days. Um, anyway, tonight I'm going to talk about some of the philosophical problems with evolution. And these are um, usually questions, uh, criticisms that are brought up uh, by those that are critical of the theory. Um, but there are some, I believe, some, some uh, real uh, philosophical, uh, some, some, some crucial philosophical aspects that, that should be considered here. And you can follow along with me on the handout. I apologize if the font's a little small. I tried to make it all fit on one, uh, one piece of paper. I did derive heavily from uh, the paper that's online at talkorigins.org by John Wilkins, who's done an excellent work on the subject. Um, so there's a number of questions uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, is evolution a tautology? Is it even science? Um, what are species? How can we define species? Uh, things like this. Um, so first I'm just going to get into the question of is evolution tautological? Um, the argument goes that since, uh, since evolution is defined as survival of the fittest, you know, natural selection is survival of the fittest, uh, and the fittest are those that survive. So it seems like it's a, it's a kind of a circular definition, a tautology. But in, in actuality, fitness is really defined uh, in a more complex way than this. Um, it's not just those organisms that survive. Fitness is a quality that is bestowed by certain characteristics, including the genes, including the environment, including chance. All these things are sort of interact in space and time on individual organisms and populations of organisms. So it, it's not really it's not really tautology in that sense and in, in that argument the way it's presented. Um, Karl Popper uh, said that uh, he, he he made this, uh, a similar argument that, that evolution was uh, the, the definition of evolution was tautological. He said that there's there's any situation where species exist is compatible with Darwinian evolution because to exist they have to survive. So when we're talking about species that exist and we're talking about the survivors anyway, so evolution is meaningless. But that's not necessarily the case either because there are many situations which Darwin, Darwin's theory predicts uh, would never happen. Uh, and so it's not just any species which could exist are those which survive. It's uh, the, 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 the mechanisms generate specific predictions about which species exist. So it doesn't necessarily rule out uh, everything, uh, but it rules out some uh, anything that's theoretically impossible according to the rules of genetics or molecular biology or what have you. Um, Fitness is a little bit better described as uh, a disposition of a trait, rather than uh, that it's a trait that allows an organism to reproduce better than its competitors. That's really what we're talking about. 
it's not something that's deterministic, that if you have fitness, you will survive. It's more of a, um, like a probability thing. A certain organism has certain characteristics that make it more probable that it will be, that it will survive. Uh, you could have a, a dog, you know, a really amazing dog, and gets run over by a car. You know, so that doesn't necessarily mean that just because something is fit, it will survive and pass on its genes. Um, it's more of a relation of some genes to other genes. Richard Dawkins talks about the, the gene as the basic unit here. Um, and uh, some philosophers consider fitness to be something more of an emergent property anyway of different systems, systems interacting together, organisms and populations and genes. Everything sort of coming together to give that characteristic of fitness. And so that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about survival of the fittest. It's, it's not a circular definition at all. And so this, this question of uh, whether or not evolution is tautological uh, really doesn't make any sense. So it does kind of bring up some, some other things, and we can move um, into the next question of whether or not evolution is science. And uh, there's been a whole lot written on the philosophy of science that uh, is, is well beyond me, uh, quite honestly. But one of the main things uh, that's been done historically is, is the work of Karl Popper, um, who sort of was going against um, uh, following in the footsteps of Newtonian determinism and logical positivism. Um, and and he's, he was talking about falsificationism. Um, and he, he was of the opinion that science, to, to be science, had to be able to be falsified. It had to be tested by observation and experiment. And it had to be able to make predictions. So the question is, well, does evolution fall under this category? Does it fall under this definition? Well, uh, there's a number of problems here that uh, are, are st that we still have to deal with. Um, Kuhn argued that you can't even compare when one theory is better than another scientifically, uh, because each global theory is sort of like its own worldview and it carries its own assessment methods. And then that to be able to switch from one theory to the next, you, you can't really do it by an evidence claim, it's more of a paradigmatic shift. There has to be this, this snapping from one worldview to the next. And uh, so there's really, no, there's really no obvious objective way to determine what is science and what is not. Um, and he actually he was in favor of just letting science do what science wanted, letting scientists do whatever they wanted. Um, and that science should be whatever scientists did, uh, which is kind of circular in itself. Um, Fairbend was of the opinion that there was really no such thing as a scientific method. Um, he was advocating, he was an advocate of uh, letting any non-scientific claim uh, inform science, including astrology, numerology, anything like that, as long as it helped the progression of science. Um, he was actually uh, in favor of some of the early creationist arguments, actually. Um, this was a little bit more of the extreme side of, of letting scientists do whatever they want and call that science. Um, the problem was that there was no real point where you could say what was the dividing line between rational science and non-science. It was really hard to do. Uh, and in fact, there was something called the uh, Duham-Quine thesis, which says that 
nothing can be falsified if you want to make suitable adjustments elsewhere in your theoretical uh, communication or commitments. And uh, so if, if something doesn't go as you as you would like, you could just say, well, the, the microscope was off or you know something else interfered. And uh, the problem with that is it completely rejects any sort of logical positivism. You can't prove anything at all. Everything is subjective. And uh, the thing that came about to sort of make sense of this was uh, pragmatism. It said that uh, something is scientific if, if the, uh, the hypothesis generates a practical outcome. Uh, if it works, it's scientific if it works. And um, so if you get an accumulation of data and theories that sort of work out in a practical way, then you can consider that science. And that was actually sort of what Darwin was doing, actually, when, when he was doing his work and trying to generate as much data as possible when he was generating his theory. Um, he was really trying to do what he believed was the, the best way of arriving at you know, a good scientific conclusion by getting as much inductive data as possible. You can't really arrive at, at scientific conclusions deductively all the time. And so he was really, and this is part of the reason why he delayed the publication of his thesis for so long is because he was gathering so much evidence because he really wanted um, it to be accepted. He didn't, didn't want there to be any question of it. He thought he was, that's what you did. Um, the other thing about uh, whether or not evolution is science, uh, falsification. Um, it's very often claimed that evolution cannot be falsified and therefore it's not science. And there's actually some scientists out there that, that make this claim, which is unfortunate. Um, but the reality is that it can be falsified um, in a non-deductive way, of course. Um, there can be any number of things which can be found which throw a monkey wrench into the entire theory. You can find the skeleton of a human in the Precambrian period, for example. Uh, you could uh, analyze our DNA and find that um, our closest uh, genetic relative is actually the parakeet. You know, that would that would that would be a pretty a pretty obvious uh, falsification of uh, evolutionary theory as we know it. Um, and there have been a number since Darwin actually wrote his his thesis. Um, there have been a number of things which have changed. And there's the the great synthesis, of course, in the 1940s. Um, incorporating molecular biology and, and genetics into the theory of evolution. Um, probably, uh, if you go back now and you reread Darwin, you, you do recognize, it, it, is easy to, it is easy to recognize it as evolution, um, looking backwards, but I, I really doubt if, if he was able to look at what evolution is now, the way we conceptualize it, I doubt if he would really recognize it as, as something that is uh, his theory something different? So, so evolution is a science. Uh, it's practical. It can be falsified. It, you can do experiments and, and make predictions. Um, the next question is actually um, it's one of my favorite questions. I just gave a talk on this earlier at the, the Church of Free Thought. Um, what are species? And this is this is a little sort of like a mind teaser, mind bender uh, about evolution and, and just sort of biology in general and science in general, actually. Um, the problem is that, uh, of course, if you, if you go out and you find any animal, any organism, you look at it, a cat or a dog, 
you can say these are different species. A cat is a cat, a dog is a dog. That's it's really intuitive to think like that. The problem is there's no really good way to actually make those determinations scientifically. Um, there, part of the problem is that uh, there's a long tradition of essentialism that existed um, prior to Darwin, obviously, um, derived uh, ultimately from Platonic idealism that all, all things that exist, including animals, are imperfect uh, copies of some perfect form. And if that is true, then of course species are, that, that concept is an essential concept and it cannot change. It cannot change from one perfect archetypal form to another one. And so the idea was for a long time that if something was a species, it could not change. And if it was able to change, well then it couldn't be a species. And this was a, you know, a problem for evolution, although this was, this was starting to be a concern even before Darwin. There was, um, there was a lot of um, questioning of this concept already. Uh, it actually came sort of by way of, uh, by way of Aristotle through uh, Islamic philosophy, Muslim philosophy, back into um, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And Carl von Linné picked it up in his, when he used his binomial taxonomy system, that's basically the, the, the philosophical foundation to what he was doing. With these species were these essential forms, and I have to give them names because this is what they are. Um, you can also call this typological essentialism. Um, and this is sort of the conception that a lot of um, creationists and other people who criticize evolution have when they say that evolution represents uh, a devolution. That is, it's, it's a, a degradation of some essential form for creationists. You know, it's whatever species were created ex nihilo um, during the creation. Since then, there's been a, just a, a devolution, perhaps. Um, but <clears throat> the problem was pretty obvious. In, in, in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, there are a lot of naturalists that were out there looking at, Darwin was one of them, um, he was not the only one, looking at species and it became very obvious that species really do not exhibit this typological uh, behavior. There really is not a, a line is a line is a line. There, there really is a, quite a big range of characteristics among species. Um, and some species are actually differ more internally than they do externally. There are actually you know, more differences between members of one species than there are from one to another. So that was a big problem. Um, and uh, it, it was no longer really possible to, to, to keep this conception of this morphological kind, this, uh, this typological kind. And, um, Darwin was of the opinion that uh, actually the species names were just sort of uh, arbitrary almost. They were just used to record what you had observed out in the field and they didn't really represent something that was unchangeable and uh, that, that may have helped him with, his, with the development of his theory. Um, there was also the change in, um, in thinking of 
animals as sort of individual creatures and thinking of them more as populations of creatures. Um, that was a pretty big change in the way people were thinking about things. And uh, when we look at populations of, of animals and organisms, plants and animals, other organisms uh, in the wild today, we can see that there is you know, a very obvious distribution. Uh, most things follow a bell curve distribution in, in uh, various characteristics. And uh, the problem is that there is, uh, most of them are clustered around the mean, but there are outliers on both sides. And among similar species, those outliers can actually overlap. Um, there is a further problem um, in the, uh, the existence of what are called ring species. And these are species which uh, exist as kind of a continuum uh, along, along some line. And if you can think of it as like a straight line, you have one species over here and a succession of species following each other. And uh, as that succession goes along, the, each species is slightly changed from the other. Well, that's all fine and good. That, you know, that makes sense. We can expect that in evolution. Um, but what happens if that line is not a straight line? It's a curved line it's around some geological formation or something like that, like a mountain, perhaps. Well, then you run into the possibility that the, the species that's at the, the head of that line is going to meet the tail at some point. And when that happens, um, it's called a ring species. And these are almost always characterized by um, hybridization. The species that are right next to each other along that line are so closely related they can actually hybridize. Um, but as that progression goes along, the, the differences that have accrued during that progression are sufficient that at the end of the line, those species are sufficiently distinct from the original species that they can no longer hybridize. So you've got kind of a problem. There's a continuous line of hybridization all the way back up to the head at which point it stops. So if you had the species that were right next to each other, you would say, well, those are definitely different species. They cannot interbreed at all. But around that ring, it seems to be just one long extended group of subspecies. And there's some pretty good examples of this. Um, there's the herring gull, which goes around the Arctic Circle, starts um, uh, with, the, with the herring gull in Great Britain, and it goes around North America. There's the American herring gull and a bunch of Siberian species, and it comes back around to Norway to the black-backed gull, which is a smaller bird, um, and the, the feathers on the back, the mantle will have actually become dark gray, almost black. And these two cannot interbreed, but all along that line, they can. Um, there's some other good examples. There's the satin salamander in California and the greenish warbler in uh, central Eurasia. Uh, but these all represent sort of problems to the idea of a species. I mean, if, if, if not, not only is a species not a typological um, essential thing, but it, it really can't even be defined at all. I mean, if, these, if these ring species are, you know, are what they are. It would be a lot simpler, of course, if, if you went along and, you know, killed off half the seagulls in the world. You, you killed off all the ones in, in Siberia, then it's no question that you actually have two species because there's no hybridization anymore. Um, but uh, until that's, that type of thing happens, it sort of exists in a limbo state where you can't really say 
that it's one species or another. Some of them are just considered one long sub subspecies. Um, at any rate, the best we can do uh, in terms of uh, defining species are to use, uh, we can use typology to a certain extent. Um, it used to be that when you, when you actually went out to the field, you would find a new organism, you'd kill it, bring it back, and put it in a drawer in the museum. And anything else that you found would be compared to that thing that you had in the drawer. Um, it doesn't really work, obviously. Um, but we can still do something similar to that. Um, most museums still have typological specimens in drawers someplace. Um, it's much more productive to compare morphology, look at a general population, and, and look at morphological characteristics, and compare them, and divide them up along those lines. We can also look at um, the sexual isolationism. This is the, basically the definition that Ernst Mayer came up with, that for, in order for two species to actually be considered separate, they have to be unable to breed. Um, and, uh, and genetics, phylogeny, looking at that actually helps us a lot. Um, the best thing that we can uh, define them as are uh, biological entities that change. That's pretty much the best we can do at this point. Uh, another criticism of evolution is uh, that it's reductionist. Um, and this kind of goes to, um, there's the criticism made that uh, biology is everything, let's see how to do it. Everything in science is physics, everything else is just stamp collecting. And, uh, and biologists really didn't like this because they thought that they were doing something more important than stamp collecting. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a fair assessment. For, for a long time, back in the, the, the naturalism, back when Darwin was doing what he was doing, there was quite a lot of going out and collecting dead animals, like I said, and bringing them back to museums and putting them in drawers. Um, but there has, uh, there was also the, the idea that, uh, well, really, if you just look at biology, it's, you can just reduce it down to um, chemistry and physics. You know, you go to uh, an organism, and you can reduce it down to its, uh, its organs, reduce those down to the cells, reduce that down to the molecules, down to the atoms, and finally back to physics, the real science. Um, and this, uh, this is sort of like an, considered like an ontological uh, reduction, and very frequently there's the uh, the criticism is made that evolution, um, if if evolution is true, then we're all just X. You know, this, whether that's we're all just molecules in motion, or we're all just animals, or we're all just whatever, that criticism is, is made quite a bit about evolution. And the problem is that it, it really is not the case. It, it's much more complicated. Evolution is much more complicated than reducing anything down to just anything. It certainly is true that um, we are animals and we are made up of cells and we are those cells are made up of molecules and those molecules are made up of atoms. Um, but trying to derive any sort of sense of order from that, uh, any sort of um, epistemic reductionism there is very, very difficult. And uh, I don't really think it can be done. Some people go back and forth on this, um, but I'm very skeptical of that. So um, one of the people that gets a lot of flack, um, obviously, these days is Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, uh, in which he argued that the gene was the basic unit of selection. 
and that we are all, all of us are just basically vehicles along for the ride. We are just you know co-opted uh, as in, in the, the genetic struggle to replicate. The, what, what is really important are these replicators, whether they be DNA or RNA or, or anything else out there that can replicate and that our bodies are just basically vehicles for those genes. And this was seen as a, a reductionist approach. But he, his, uh, the point of, of Richard Dawkins in, in that book was really just to, to draw focus to the importance of genes, not, not really to, to write off individuals as worthless and meaningless. So um, it, it's really not, um, it, it's really sort of a misplaced uh, criticism. Um, a lot of people run into the definition that, um, and I, I've said this before, that uh, evolution is basically divine, defined as change in allele frequency over time in a given population. And that that is technically the definition if you go, if you're looking in textbooks. Yeah, that's true, but that is still a little bit too reductionist and uh, it, it really is, it really does belie the, uh, the, the sheer complexity of it. I mean, yeah, Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium and things like that when you're measuring population genetics and making uh, predictions and, and you know, calculations about change in a population, it can be helpful to, to understand that, but there, there really is a lot more. And, and um, uh, Richard Dawkins actually has written another book about the extended phenotype, which uh, <laughs> kind of does that. But so the uh, the reductionist uh, criticism of evolution that it's sort of like a just bookkeeping basically that these these genes are just working and and nothing else really matters that is really not the case. It really is more complex than that. Um, the next criticism is uh, that is about evolution. It views evolution as something that is directed, a process that is directed, the teleological process. And this is a misconception that um, really kind of owes a lot more to the, the culture and the time in which Darwin lived um, than anything else. And actually, it, an aspect of the culture that has stayed with us till just about this century. The idea that, that time is you know, linear and it's getting better Things are getting better all the time, and they had, this idea was applied to society that you know society was constantly getting better and better and better, and so it seemed only natural that if you had this selective um, theory of organismal change, species change, that it only made sense that species would be getting better over time, and uh, this is really not the case. It's kind of uh, it's uh, referred to as the scala naturae, the ladder of perfection, and uh, evolution really is not like that. Uh, it kind of gets a little bit back more into the old uh, Greek thinkers. It's really more of a, um, Stephen Gould calls it, uh, evolution is more of a, a bush than a tree. It goes off in all these different directions, and uh, there's not this idea that you're making progress along a particular linear direction. Um, the, the idea of progress itself uh, was sort of a late medieval notion. Um, biological systems uh, can be, you, you can sort of apply a teleological thought process to biological systems uh, if you want to look at them in a historical way. 
and quite frequently we use teleological language to describe biological processes. Um, and what we're actually doing is describing the historical aspects of that process. And it can be very confusing. In, in evolution, you talk about, well, organism X evolved some characters Y. And it makes it sound like there was an intention there. Like this organism wanted to, to change or wanted to do this particular thing, so it evolved this particular characteristic. And, you know, of course, anybody who's familiar with natural selection knows that that's not how it works. It's just that those organisms which had that particular characteristic were able to more, were more able to survive and, and, and prosper than those that did not. So it's not an in, intentional um, type of teleology. Um, and, and that that sense, that uh, that sort of external teleological, teleological sense has really been abandoned by biologists. Although um, there are a couple other um, terms that are similar to, to teleology. teleology. Um, there are teleonomic processes, which are goal-seeking, and uh, teleomatic, which are, they are law-like in behavior, but they're not goal-seeking. And um, genetic evolution would be regarded as teleonomic. It is law-like, but it does not seek any particular goal. It just it proceeds according to uh, its manner. Um, so the, uh, the next question. Is evolution necessarily natural? Um, and this is this is a big question under debate right now. Not not so much debate as as this argument um, between um, the uh, people who are advancing evolutionary theory and those in the intelligent design movement. Um, although that that movement is, is sort of dwindling now. Um, but the argument that evolution discards anything supernatural. Um, it actually is true. Um, evolution, like it, like any other science, we've already talked about evolution as science, it is methodologically naturalistic. Um, it, cannot, it cannot use any non-natural explanation, and it cannot observe any non-natural phenomena. If something can be observed, then it is natural. And if something has an explanation, then that explanation has to be natural. Um, this does not mean that uh, non-natural phenomena are ruled out. It just means that they cannot be approached by science. Um, the, uh, the invisible pink unicorn, for example, is a, is a favorite. Uh, the flying spaghetti monster is another one that is uh, used as, as an example. And I can remember when I was in uh, when I was in graduate school, I was studying um, some organic chemistry with some friends of mine. And, we could not figure out this uh, this reaction between two. There's some reagents, and they you know progressed along a certain path, and you, you ended up with some products. And we could not figure out um, I think the the penultimate uh, reaction. And uh, somebody wrote down uh, on the paper, well then the or magical organic chemistry fairy comes along and <laughs> turns it into what you need. Um, and that's the type of thinking that. Um, that really is unscientific. And uh, so <clears throat> the other problem is, um, in terms of dealing with natural versus non-natural explanations, we really have no conception of what a non-natural explanation would even look like. Um, it's, it's very hard to 
even conceptualize something like that. Um, for for something to be non-natural, it would have to violate natural law and uh, break the causal chain. And um, so, actually, one one definition of the supernatural is anything that is uncaused. Um, but if you had something like that, how in the world do you integrate that into a scientific explanation? You absolutely can't. You have to have a causal chain in order to have anything resemble science. And uh, so, outside of physical processes, there's there's really no way to to approach non-scientific or non-natural explanations in a scientific way, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever. Um, there are there's also the possibility that um, some phenomena could be caused by many causes, uh, one of which would be natural. Um, there's often the whenever this is discussed between uh, proponents of intelligent design versus um, scientists, the possibility is brought up that, well, uh, evolution works in this certain way, but God makes it work like that. So they, they sort of add in a, um, a non-natural co-cause. You, you, know, you, you might have two causes for one phenomenon, one being natural and the other being non-natural. And logically, um, on the face of it, it, it seems all right. I mean, as long as you have something that's natural there explaining it, you don't have a big problem um, until you realize that it, it's really a stretch rocket's razor. If you have a natural explanation for something, you don't need to unnecessarily multiply entities. Uh, and so. Yeah, logically that might be the case, um, but we don't need to consider that. Um, another big problem with um, the directive of evolution is uh, whether it's immoral. And this is, I see this more often than not. Um, in fact, um, there's a, a fellow I know, a preacher, who has a, he has a quote from Jeffrey Dahmer on his homepage. I have no idea if the quote is accurate, but um, <laughs> the quote is from Jeffrey Dahmer, and it says, some, I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer believed that, uh, you know, he figured, well, if, if evolution is true, we're all animals, it doesn't matter what he does, and so that's why he killed and ate so many people. And uh, so this is, yeah, I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me, but. Um, but this is this is something that is in the forefront of, of a lot of people out there. The average person, I think, people in general are really concerned about morality and and um, the idea that believing in something results in immorality is is really disturbing and distressing to people. Um, there's uh, I can't remember what the name of that um, Charles Kennedy. Or James Kennedy, uh, he's a televangelist. Had a had a movie on where he was comparing um, Darwin to the Nazis, and um, <laughs> this is this is the, the typical you know contention that's brought up that uh, these ideas of social biology, sociobiology, and social Darwinism um, that we look at certain things. Uh, about ourselves biologically and, and we make social changes based on those. 
uh, and social Darwinism uh, in that we, you know, only the fit survive. And so if anybody out there is having, you know, is less fit than somebody else, then we should let them die or help them along, as the Nazis did. Um, and this, really the only thing that this has in common with Darwin is the name they've given. It really does not derive at all from his theory. It actually has a lot more in common with the, uh, the ideas of Thomas Malthus. Although uh, Malthus did uh, influence Darwin to, to a certain extent also. Um, but it's really something completely separate from evolution. And, and it, to, to, uh, to compare the two and to, uh, to assert any sort of uh, influence from Darwinism onto social Darwinism is, is grossly mistaken. Um, this is also uh, an example of the, the naturalistic fallacy. That uh, if if something is uh, if something is the case, then the, then you assume that it's right. Um, so if evolution says that somebody is weak, then you should let them die. Um, makes about as much sense as saying, well, if somebody gets their arm broken, then you should just let them, you know, have their arm broken and not try to mend it. That doesn't really make any sense. Um, uh, David Hume, of course, showed that his does not follow from ought. Their ought does not uh, follow from his. And, uh, of course, evolutionary theory does not exclude a purpose from life. It just doesn't offer one. That's the thing. And that, that gets right into the next, um, the final question, actually. Is evolution a religion? Now, this is also very, very common. Um, I don't know if you, any of you are familiar with... Um, uh, what's his name? Dr. Dino. What's his real name? Ken Hoven. Yeah, yeah. Ken Hoven. Um, he would often claim that uh, evolution is a religion and evolutionists worship time as their god because they're always talking about time and time. So anything can happen with time. Um, anyway, this is a very common criticism. And uh, Ken Ham, who is... Um, He's with the Answers in Genesis crew. Uh, he says, when we discuss creation evolution, we're talking about beliefs. In other words, religion. The controversy is not religion versus science. It is religion versus religion. And the science of one religion versus the science of another. So that's really what is being, what is being promoted here. That evolution is a religion. And then... Strange enough, it sort of brings it down to the level of their religion um, and at least makes it equal. Um, and uh, Ken Miller, who's uh, written an excellent book called Finding Darwin's God, he uh, makes an excellent point. He says, it is crucial for creationists that they convince their audience that evolution is not scientific because both sides agree that creationism is not. <laughs> and that, that really is kind of true. Um, but is, is evolution a religion? Well, for it to be a religion, it would have to be something, some system of metaphysics. And metaphysics is concerned with um, the fundamental nature of reality and being, and that includes um, ontology, cosmology, and, and usually epistemology. Um, it's more of like a, a study of what's outside of objective experience. Um, and evolutionary theory is decidedly not this. Evolutionary theory is not uh, a worldview. It, it doesn't say anything about the fundamental nature of reality. 
um, or cosmology or anything like that. Um, it did sort of, interestingly enough, it did sort of grow out of natural theology movement within Christianity. The idea that um, God had designed things to be a certain way and there was a certain order to things and if you just looked at them closely enough, everything would make sense. And that really did inspire a lot of the scientific uh, progress uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. But um, there's another interesting quote from uh, J.B.S. Haldane, a really good uh, famous evolutionary biologist. Um, he was asked what biology taught about the nature of God. And he said, uh, well, he seems to have an inordinate fondness for beetles. <laughs> there are so many of them. Um, but eventually, uh, evolutionary science did remove the ground underneath uh, natural theology. and wasn't really considered to be anything worthwhile. Um, because the, the arguments uh, that for design were not only the, the only conclusion that could be drawn from the evidence. And um, the other thing is that uh, there's a lot of criticism of the random chance aspect of, of evolution. Everything just amounts to chance. And um, people have a real need to find purpose in reality. And um, usually this derives from some sort of a religious conviction. Um, but other philosophical views hold this too. Um, usually it's, it's the case that idealists um, and creationists would, would fall into this, this category, I believe they have a hard time accepting the view that reality doesn't care. They really need to have this conception that um, there really is a purpose and uh, some sort of a, a plan of reality for everything. And uh, evolutionary theory obviously undermines this because it shows that it's not necessarily the case. Um, for Christians, of course, the foundation is the view that, that God's mind is that purpose, that it, it uh, is directly behind all physical phenomena. And uh, since evolution sort of undercuts this truth in their minds, um, they usually conclude that it's the work of the devil. Um, um, but many evolutionists really don't think that um, the mere fact and, and scientific theory of evolution uh, prohibits any sort of moral um, or even spiritual meaning. And uh, there's a couple of good examples. Again, Ken Miller, who I just mentioned before, is a practicing Roman Catholic. Uh, and his book, Finding Darwin's God, is actually, um, it's, it's a really good uh, examination of evolution from a lay perspective. Um, but the, the final few chapters are his... Um, his search and his desire to sort of rectify what he knows about evolution with what he wants to believe about God. And some people could argue it's just a glorified God of the gaps approach, but well, that's that's kind of what it has to be, quite honestly. And uh, but he he obviously has no no trouble re um, reconciling uh, his acceptance of evolutionary theory with his belief in the, the Catholic faith. Um, there are others, uh, like Michael Behe, who um, is, is a practicing Christian also, um, who argues against evolutionary theory. So it can go either way. 
his name Michael? Michael Behe. B-E-H-E is his last name. He wrote uh, the book Darwin's Black Box, and he uh, is actually one of the Darwins of the intelligent design movement. Um, ultimately, science is metaphysically neutral. As I said, it doesn't doesn't really say anything for or against any metaphysical position. Um, and we, we know this because you can run any scientific experiment, uh, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And the experiments work the same way no matter what you believe, uh, no matter what your metaphysics are. Um, there was uh, an interesting concept which was uh, brought up by Stephen Jay Gould. He talked about non-overlapping magisteria. And it was his attempt to... I guess reconcile the problems that were, that were being uh, brought up at that time. At, at that time, it was the creation science movement, so the intelligent design movement. But um, he thought that he could uh, just make the evolution stay in this room and the religion stay in this room, and they don't have to interact at all. The problem is that um, if metaphysical claims are made. In, about natural phenomenon, then science actually does have a voice and can rule on certain things. There, any religion uh, makes natural claims about things, uh, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Hinduism, or what have you. And if those natural claims are made, then science can evaluate them. And um, it's not it's not that uh, it's it's an anti-religion uh, approach. Um, it's just the fact of the matter. You make a, a natural claim and science can comment on it. And uh, evolutionary theory does that. Um, it can be argued that evolutionary theory could function as sort of like an attitudinal uh, metaphys metaphysical system in that it sort of may influence the way you think about things, may, may color, your, color your thinking. Um, and that certainly may be the case. Uh, but it still is really not, it's, it's a far cry from what, a, what you really need to have a, a full-fledged metaphysical system. Uh, in fact, it's fairly, fairly poor as a metaphysic. Um, so for those who feel that uh, they really need cosmic meaning in their lives, there's, there's really not anything about evolution that's going to preclude that um, as long as they realize that it's not going to support it. So there are evolutionists that have argued in favor of uh, some sort of a cosmic meaning. Um, but uh, there are also those that have said that there can be no cosmic meaning because of evolution. So you know, both sides of the table. So um, that's about all I have for this. That's the last question. And now I guess it's time for your questions. Uh, has anybody <clears throat> developed a hypothesis as to how complex systems evolve? Well, complex systems evolve by basically putting together less complex systems. Right, but I mean, but complex systems are basically systems that require three or four things at the same time for anything to work. And I'm just interested in case somebody has developed a detailed explanation of how that happens. Are you, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of actually Michael Behe again. He has the, the mousetrap analogy. 
where he said, if you're familiar with this, uh, no, um, it's actually, he refers to this uh, as irreducible complexity, the idea that there, are, there may be systems which are so complex that if you remove any component, then the whole thing won't work. And he has the example of a mousetrap, like like simple mousetrap with a snap shut. And he'll say, look, the mousetrap is it's a complex system. It has half a dozen parts. If you remove any single one of those parts, the mousetrap won't work. And he argues that there are systems that are that 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 are complex, like a mousetrap, irreducibly complex, in. Uh, organisms that sort of belie the idea of evolution, and this is what he uses to criticize it. Oh, okay, okay, but if evolution is true, then those complex systems did evolve. Yes. Okay, and I just want somebody, an evolutionist, the bigger, the better, to explain well, how that happened. Not as big as you might hope. <laughs> the, um, no, there, there actually has been um, quite a bit of evolution. As I said, Michael Behe published a book called Darwin's Black Box, and he gave several examples of things which he regarded as uh, irreducibly complex, one of them being um, the flagellum of a bacteria. It's, it's a little motor. Basically, it's a biomechanical motor on the bacteria that makes a little whip tail move around and it scoots the bacteria around. And he said that this motor is irreducibly complex. You cannot remove any part of it and have it work as a motor. Well, what we've actually found out is that that's sort of true. If you remove a single part of that, it won't function as a motor. The caveat is it functions pretty well as something else. And it, it actually, uh, there have been quite a few studies in the past few years. His book has been about 10 years old, so there's been enough time for people to do research on these things. And uh, if you remove uh, a couple parts of that bacterial motor, it doesn't work as a motor, but it works really great as a pump for moving things in and out of the bacterial cell. And so this is, this would then be a good explanation for these, the evolution of these complex systems, that they really do evolve um, piecemeal, you know, one one thing at a time, one addition at a time. What's hard to grasp, though, is that it's not a motor evolving. It's not something that's evolving into a motor bit by bit, but it's something evolving into something else that's useful in some other way, and then something changes, and it, now it's useful in a different way. Yeah. And now it's useful as a different way, and then now it's finally useful as a motor. Okay, that's a simple explanation. And Michael B is the other side. Right. I want an evolutionist to make that explanation in a detailed way. That's just that's why. Well, but that that that's a very limited, you know. What what are you looking for? Are you looking for some specific <laughs> examples? He's looking for God Well, <laughs> I just want somebody to explain that in a very detailed. That that's not detailed. Well, okay. I think the crowd is ruled that he did attempt to answer. No I can I can I can. If you, maybe before we go any further, um, my email address is zach at drzach.net, Z-A-C-H at D-R-Z-A-C-H dot net. So if you do have any questions, you can email me there, and I can I can send you some links to those papers if you'd like to read the, some of the papers that have come out. Um, before we go on, I just want to remember the ground rules over here. Uh, sorry, announce the ground rules here. Uh, two minutes for comments or questions. Um, back and forth is fun, but just a lot of questions people have, so just try to limit your comments questions two minutes. Just go ahead. Be right there in the glasses. Yes. Um, 
so far you've talked about evolution sort of isolated to the Earth. Is there anything in evolution that explains sort of the history of the universe? Well, to, to, to address that, we would have to have uh, some examples of life outside the universe. Evolution is a bio biological theory, and biology deals with life. Um, what you bring up is interesting, though. There's um, another one of the criticisms is that uh, evolution has to explain, um, and again, this is uh, Kent Hovind, Dr. Dino, uh, who makes this argument. So. He, doesn't really count for much, but he's he's a very loud person out there. He says that evolution has to explain uh, cosmic evolution, stellar evolution, um, chemical evolution, all these things which are not part of biology at all. It is true that as you know, if you, if you are interested in like Big Bang cosmology and stuff like that, you will see that yeah, stars do change over time. If you want to call that evolution, okay, it's sort of a more colloquial use of, of the term. It's not really evolutionary theory. As a, like a biolog biological, you know, thing, uh, but there is change over time. If, if, if anything, that's change over time is evolution, okay. Um, but you're really talking about cosmology at that point. Uh, if we imagine that 500 years from now, human beings are manipulating their DNA, you know, to have longer life, immunity from disease, or whatever, mm -hmm. would would it be accurate to say at that point that, that there's an emergent property of, of um, uh, intention and evolution, or or would, is that entirely impossible in the way that you look at it? Well, yeah, I, you could kind of look at it that way, but to me, it, it, everything everything that we do as humans is part of our phenotype, and our phenotype is based on our genes, and so the genes don't really care. And this is goes back to Richard Dawkins' book where he talks about the selfish gene. The genes just want to be replicated, and the the phenotype that's come together in, in our particular collection of genes um, has allowed us to do a lot of really cool things, and we tend to make the distinction of what humans are doing as something artificial as opposed to something natural. But we're part of it all, and what we do is part of our phenotype, and so if we start playing with our genes, which we are already doing, actually, then that's just part of our phenotype. But didn't you just do what you said Dawkins doesn't do and reduce everything to the gene? Well, I, I know, I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying, what we do is part of our phenotype. It's based on our genes. Our, our genes are the, the units that are being re replicated here. And so anything that happens, anything that we do is just part of our phenotype. As a gentleman, thank you. Way back there in the back. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I was going to ask you, did you say that you were could you could you uh, clarify Something separate from cause and effect? I'm sorry? Something separate from cause and effect? It's more, uh, no, it, it's just sort of a byproduct of illusion. Uh, oh, okay. The, the, the thing that we're functioning, it seems like it's all I need to give us meaningful states. Right. I mean, it seems like you set up a disjuncture between physical 
Right. Yeah, that that makes sense to me because as uh, again, our genes don't. My genes don't care that I'm talking to you here tonight. But I is that the is an adequate basis and foundation for a scientific rational history of the world that you're, you seem to be speaking on? I would think so. Yeah. Well, because it, it, it sounds like what you're, what you're talking about is just an explanation of reality. That's all. It seems like you are in your presupposition of... Well, cosmic meaningless. I mean, uh, objective meaningless. We have to create our own meaning. I, this is not coming from an evolutionist. This is personally. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a cosmic sense, evolution does not give any sort of meaning, nor does it take anything away, necessarily. It's so you're saying that you you personally you would have a problem finding meaning in an evolutionary in a worldview that accepts evolutionary theory. Well, well, good good luck to you because I don't know if I can help you with that. Have a lot of hands up. Woman right next to you. Um, I'm going to follow up on your statement. Uh, I was curious to say, you say reality doesn't care, it doesn't care. So what makes you care? Well, my personality. So we have to depend on each other's personality? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, for meaning. I mean, we have to... Not any sort of morality that's who you are. Um, what are you asking? Like, um, is it... Like, is it is I understood you correctly. You said that you don't believe in creation. Right. So there's no moral touch. No. No. Well, yeah, that's true. You create your own moral touch. Well, yes. Yes. So, pretty much, then, if everyone believes like you, right. we're all just hoping for that. Well, are you, are you asking if I'm a relativist? More relativist. If, if do I do, you're asking if I believe that when anything anybody comes up with is fine. I don't. I'm sure you're very understand, but I don't see the difference between philosophy and Jeffrey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I, 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 I well, I, I create my own moral code based on observations. I, I try to be as scientific as possible about, you know, what I derive my moral morality from. Uh, I'm not. I have no idea about Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know what he did. I, I, I doubt that he was being sincere in what he was saying. I think what. I'm sorry. Um, one, one difference is he's not in people. Okay, gentlemen in the blue shirt back there. I have a lot of questions. We'll get to everybody. Gentlemen in the blue shirt. Sure. And, and what I want to do is just kind of like reframe that last point that you brought up about religion okay. and religion. Right. I'm going to reframe it because the way it's phrased kind of leads to the conclusion because there is no ordained priesthood. Of, of evolution, and there is no system of worship. 
But we reframe that into a system of faith. Okay? And then we step away from the emotional baggage of evolution into something that's just like it, the free market system. The idea of the invisible hand, which is like natural selection. Mm -hmm. okay. You hear people talk about the market will do this and the market will do that, and therefore we don't need regulation, or therefore this, that, and the other. The same way that they use reasoning about evolution. Okay. So, another way of addressing this question is to look at something that's less emotionally charged. I'll ask you, does it seem reasonable to say that the market system of philosophy for economics is a faith system? Is they're leading in the market and the invisible game. Well, actually, um, it's funny you bring that up because I've, I've read um, a number of uh, places where they actually compare the market system to evolution. In that, it actually, instead of being a faith-based system, it's, it's sort of a, uh, an emergent, non-directed process. So I'm, I don't, I, I really don't see how you can paint it as a faith-based system. It, it seems a lot more natural to me. Than um, on that, uh, so on that practice, they practice. When you see people wow. use it, they pray to the market. They believe that the market will cause something to happen. It's almost as though it's a supernatural entity yeah. that has set things right. Well, there, there certainly is a lot of irrational thinking out there, and that's, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> we should uh, we should be careful of anybody that does that. Craig, I think you have the next question. Oh. Okay, on the uh, first part of the tautology, it, it seems like that the tautology uh, thing could apply to this evolution is necessarily natural, and it, as he said, uh, uh, science is methodologically naturalistic, which I see what you mean there. Every, everything observed is natural, and every explanation is natural. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I don't think you really mean that the Lockean's a box, but it seems like that. It, you could be locked into sort of a faith type box of some false time. In other words, if you could conceive, say hypothetically, that you had uh, observable evidence, that is, observable type senses, observable mm -hmm. evidence is that natural law, as we know it, had been suspended, which is one that right. took naturalism. Right. It, it, by, if I stick it strictly to this, you could not see it because right. you, you wouldn't have any. You would automatically find the best ex, the best naturalistic explanation, even though it may trump uh, Occam's razor. From in other words, it, it, the simple explanation may be the supernatural, but if you, I think worldviews trump Occam's razor anyway. I don't think people will go to Occam's razor outside the worldview. Well, if anyone, <coughs> other person. But uh, so you just might. Uh, Talk about that. Well, that's—I mean—that's true. Um, uh, I suppose I could imagine a supernatural explanation that's simpler. Well, certainly the magical organic chemistry fairy is a little bit simpler than um, than what's actually going on with the atoms and stuff like that. But the problem is, again, uh, if you had some non-natural phenomenon, some supernatural phenomenon that um, breaks the causal chain. How do you recognize it? What does it look like? Well, like I said, you, you, would, you would see physical evidence, you know, something which contradicts, which has no, which doesn't follow the explanation that we think it makes sense. Right. That's what right. And, and, and if, you, if it was shoved in your face, you'd have to 
Well, I, I would say, uh, again, uh, science doesn't know how to make sense of that because you're saying miracles, things that you observe? Well, well that's one example of what? Because a miracle that gives you in the physical world, here's something that happens. Like, for example, like what's an example of a, of a miracle? Raising somebody from the dead. Okay. As far as we know, uh, we don't have a that's uh, right right well as soon as as soon as we have any evidence of that we'll get right back to you you may have been jesting uh, but you referred to uh, the drive of genes to replicate themselves so my suggestion would be that if we that while we as individuals may have a drive to create progeny, uh, would not your kind of comment impute teleological reasoning right. to insensate molecules? Right, right. and I, I think I mentioned that uh, we very often use teleological language to imply something that is actually historical, not teleological, just because it's a little bit easier to communicate. And so it, it happens and you, you just slip into it naturally. But yeah, obviously that, that would be incorrect. And sorry, Doctor. Uh, for example, the word "side" can say the function of the. I said Doctor Tinsley. Yeah, I think this one is Doctor Tinsley. Uh, yeah. Okay. The, um, this question about the evolution. Sorry. Um, let's see. Has anything to say about meaning? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that uh, evolution gives us an account of history yes. that is based on evidence and observable uh, material, uh, and that tells us who we are and why our nature is the way it is. Yes. Why we feel certain things. Yes. And okay. Uh, evolution has told us in terms of studies of social. Uh, animal species uh, like um, wolves and uh, elephants and dolphins and chimpanzees that the other species is uh, you'll find uh, elements of altruism, uh, you'll find empathy, and you'll find cooperative behavior, which is uh, a natural consequence of this increasing complexity mm -hmm. and going up from cells to organs to individuals to species and there's hierarchical species and right. social organizations. So I think evolution does um, give meaning, in fact, to these attributes that we find in ourselves. And uh, I think that's uh, pretty powerful um, and much more satisfying for me argument that uh, somehow God gave us uh, uh, Commandments to do good, and, and we all do it because we're afraid that if we don't do it, we'll be totally punished. Right. At some point in the future. Right. 
Well, that's you know, that's a good that's a good point. But I would say that that probably represents um, evolution giving us information about ourselves rather than strict meaning. Because you, you you want to be careful about not tripping into the naturalistic fallacy by saying just because we have these, just because certain species exhibit altruism, that makes altruism right uh, and good moral thing to do. Well, but it is meaningful. Well. Yes, it is, in an in informative sense, and it actually does tell us a lot about um, the development of morality in other species, but it cannot tell us that we should be moral. That's right. Well, um, the, the fact that we have a society with interacting individuals uh, that is a result of evolution probably tells you that morality is it's, Yeah, it's definitely practical. Yeah, it definitely works. But again, I want to start there making any more pronouncements on that. <laughs> Dr. Chesley, number two. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I have to gag you. By the way, thanks a lot. This is great. Uh, sure. You're using logic. You know, we use the principle of non-contradiction. We're not. I'm not saying people. I mean, we have to use that. And, sure. You know, I guess my question is, do you think that traditional Western logic, like you use sentences like "if then" and you said the naturalistic policy, mm -hmm. do you think the logic is honky Western grammar that evolved? Honky Western. Um, yes or no? I would say no. But it is no. It, it is interesting. Um, things like language and the the potential for language. Um, whether whether or not these things actually evolved uh, in sort of like the traditional sense that there was a, a gene or a mutation that we had that allowed us to make if-then statements, I would say that's probably not the case. We probably um, most hominids. Uh, if you look at the evolution of hominids, there's increasing potential for what's almost called like a pre-adaptation for language development, um, and for humans, obviously the are. Um, voice boxes, the, the physical side of that, allowed us to really sort of jumpstart that and, and our brains sort of followed from that. And, and it's, it really is uh, telling if you look at studies of um, wolf children or you know, kids that are abused and kept in basements and you know, kept away from other people for their entire lives, they cannot speak language, they cannot, they cannot really grasp language. And so it really does seem to be something that really has to be taught. There's really a lot about humanity and, and who we are that really does have to be taught, does not come innately. So. Go ahead. I'll get to you over here. Go ahead first. Um, reductionist, of course. Mm -hmm. To me, it's always seemed a bit reductionist to to, to lean on survival of the fittest notions and chance and that sort of thing. Uh, that strikes me as, as uh, reductionist in a sense. It's a very mechanistic uh, process yeah. that you're talking about. And, and so I tend to want to fall back on a less reductionist, a sense in which the organism is in some sense always listening to its environment. I mean this in a very simple sense, in the sense that water always runs downhill. It's also listening to its environment. <laughs> but uh, and I, it, 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 my evidence here is the sophistication of 
of uh, specializations and, and, and adaptations of, of organisms and animals and they And some of those are the extremely sophisticated. And it took a real efficiency, in a sense, on the part of that organism to get to that point. To me, that sort of uh, calls into question of, of a very reductionist, mechanistic, just a chance, random uh, uh, spiral of you know, approach. And, I, and, and I'm not going to say this, in raising this, I'm not suggesting at all some kind of teleological or, or intelligent design thing. Only, only, only suggesting that right. I can but feel that the organism that is too reductionistic to say, and mechanistic to say that it's just chance. That there's a some sense in which evolution is really an organism listening to this. Well, it's, um, I would say that's probably only the case for humans. Um, we, we have no way of knowing whether any other organisms actually are listening to their environment. Well, I'm um, using that very metaphor. Well, I, I, I know, but but even even within that, it's it's very difficult. Um, it really does seem to be a non-guided process, and um, the survival of the fittest it, it really is more than that. Um, there's also sexual selection, in, as in addition to natural selection, there are other factors which can affect things. Um, genetic drift. There are you know, a number of things. Random chance, an organism could just die. You know, uh, or a meteor could come and, and hit something and wipe out all these other species. So there's there's a lot more to it than just natural selection, but it really does seem to be an unguided process. Um, in your definition, evolution, I think you said, was a biological process that had only to do with uh, living systems, and I think that's too narrow of a concept. Um, with a neuromolecular biology, mm -hmm. um, you can see where you know, physics, chemistry, and then from chemistry, the jump to biology uh, is a matter of, of uh, chemicals kind of wanting to rearrange themselves and make a membrane, make, make some replicating uh, process and protein metabolism, uh, and then we get life. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing is about your irreducible complexity is that we first we have life, and then we have cells, and then we have organisms, and then we have man. And at each step, uh, consciousness, societies, at each step there's a quantum kind of step that is irreducible in terms of physics or chemistry to the to the bot, to the neck to the uh, step below it. You can't reduce uh, consciousness to chemistry or physics, for example. So I think that. Uh, you know, what we're really looking at is a kind of a, con a continuum from, from cosmic stars to human societies. And that, that, that this is really, it's, instead of calling it evolution, which has kind of got a uh, pejorative uh, aura about it, I think we should call it maybe emergence or emerging complexity or something like that, because it's, it, it, to me it's beyond just uh, biology. And then, uh, you know, we, we should maybe call it emergence or something like that. Well, you, it's, you know, it's, 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 it, that seems like semantics to me. I, I don't really see evolution as being so pejorative that it, I really need to. But I, I get what you're saying. And yeah, as I said before, you know, there, there is change that happens stellar 
change, things like that. You can, there is a causal chain going all the way back to the beginning of the Big Bang. Um, without a doubt. I'm not saying that there's, you know, teleology involved. No, no, no. no. Yeah, no, no. yeah. But there is, there is definitely a chain of events, and you cannot really separate one from the other. The thing of it is, when we sort of look back and we see these quantum leaps, as you say, uh, we're sort of missing all the picture. Um, if you go and look at a bridge, and you say, well, how in the world did they get that middle part of the bridge? You know, because if it didn't have that, the bridge wouldn't be standing. You know, but obviously they were able to build this bridge in some way in order to, to put something where it would seem to be physically impossible to remove it later. And, of course, scaffolding is the answer for that. And there are evidence of a number of uh, biological systems involving with scaffolding processes where you have these, um, you have these necessary supporting structures that are in existence to allow something else to develop. And then after that happens, then you don't need the scaffolding anymore, and it can just be lost to the evolutionary philosophy and jetsam. Whether or not you really want to call something different, um, it's up to you. If you like calling it emergentism, it's, it's fine. But, but I think it's that, you know, Psychologically troubling for some. Well, we've gone from being the center of the universe, you know, right. several yeah. years ago, to now where now we we're actually evolved to a good bacterial world. It's not our world. Actually, right. We're locked out, and the bacteria is still being. Right. No. Yeah, I, I can. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a quote attributed to somebody who was um, uh, lived at the time. It was an aristocratic uh, British person at the time of Darwin who, said, who heard about the the theory and said, "Oh, you know, I hope it's not true." And then, uh, well, if it is true, then I hope people don't find out about it. <laughs> you know, it can, it can be troubling for people who yeah. really want to view themselves as special and this cosmic cause thing and well, all that. It, it, it Some people do. And one or two, time for one or two questions. Anybody who hasn't asked a question yet? Anybody wants to ask a second question? There you go, sir. Go ahead. Not a question, just a comment. Okay. A lot of comments. Have touched on this, but it seems to me like uh, a, a parallel to biological evolution that can't be separated from is what I would call behavioral slash societal evolution, which is not limited to primates, but probably begins with the bacterial, uh, and is virtually inseparable from physical evolution. Right. Well, there's like I said, I don't and, want to be... And, 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 
I don't want to be too reductionist um, and talk about just the genes. Again, it is a lot more complex than that, and there's a lot of a lot of complexity that goes throughout the entire phenotype yeah, for all organisms. Um, we are going to meet next door. I just want to make an announcement before we go on. Uh, place called what's the name of it? Midway Point. So the next building over. Go out this, go out this door. Next building over. Little bar. If you want to. A phenotype is the um, the ultimate outcome of any gene. When, when a gene is expressed, for example, I have blue eyes. That is the phenotype based on the, the genes that I have. So anything that is manifested by your genes is, is called a phenotype. And it's not just something physical about you. Um, beavers build dams. That's part of their phenotype, extended phenotype. Okay, I'll ask the last question. Okay. Can you observe a species? Observe a species. A species? Well, this is the problem. It's the problem of species. <laughs> um, we we can do a pretty good job of observing a species. Again, a species is always something that's in flux. So you know, it's often, you're, you're observing a species as it exists just then. That's that's as best as we can do. And with that, we hope you come back next time.